everybody. I'm John White. We're honoured to have Kevin Peer join us today on this week's episode of SAMA. Kevin has been a Spooky user since 2013. He became interested in Rife and Spooky 2 while recovering from a serious case of neurological Lyme <coughs> and several other tick-borne diseases. In addition to Rife and Spooky 2, he utilised many other modalities including IV antibiotics herbal tinctures, IV zone therapy, prayer, meditation, visualisation and self-hypnosis. Kevin's professional background has included travelling the world as a filmmaker for both the National Park Service and National Geographic Television, teaching documentary filmmaking at the college level and giving workshops in filmmaking around the country. In 2008, Kevin decided to follow a deep inner calling to help individuals to effect meaningful change to their inner lives. He assumed at first that he would need to become a psychological counsellor, but after researching the most effective modalities for facilitating positive inner change, he chose to study the clinically proven field of hypnotherapy instead. Kevin has had a practice in transpersonal hypnosis and inner life mentoring since 2010. He is a board certified consulting hypnotist and is certified in clinical hypnosis through the National Guild of Hypnotists. He is also certified in the transpersonal modality of depth hypnosis through the Depth Hypnosis Institute. He has a deep belief in the power of the mind and spirit to transform emotional and physical health and finds that hypnosis is an effective way to accomplish this in safe and gentle ways. This sounds so exciting. Kevin's practice is called Inner Alliance Consulting and his website is www.innerallianc.net. So over to you, Kevin. Okay, wow. A little nervous here. My first ever webinar, giving a webinar. Um, really honored to be here and to um, share with you some of the things that I have learned along my path of, of healing um, as it relates to the power of the mind and, um, and of one's spiritual life in working towards uh, better health. Um, so I'm going to give a little rundown of some of the things I'll talk about during this this hour or so that that I'll be talking, having this one-sided conversation, and then I'll be um, open for questions. I'll probably be open for questions even before then. Um, so I welcome them. So what we're going to talk about is I'm going to help you to understand more the profound influence of the mind on the body uh, in both positive and negative ways. I'm um, going to familiarize you with the concept of what's called the placebo response, which you've probably heard of, and how it can be a benefit to you. Um, I'll talk about the power of story and storytelling and how you can harness this power for increasing your mental, emotional, and physical well-being. I'll give you an overview of the role of um, spirituality in, and um, how that can be used in healing. Um, I'll also introduce you to the process of hypnosis, what it is, some of the misconceptions about it, 
what it can be used for. And then finally, I'll introduce you to the, uh, a little bit about the wonderful world of self-hypnosis and how you can use it in your life. Now, I, I just want to say, because we're covering a lot of information, that this is really an overview. Um, I'm not going to um, create a hypnotic induction or anything like that in this particular session. So it's mainly just to give you an overview of, of uh, possibilities and how we are all gifted with this wonderful mind and this wonderful capacity for harnessing the mind. And uh, if we're spiritually inclined of harnessing our uh, spiritual life, our engagement with that realm, to affect sometimes really quite dramatic uh, healing. So, um, there's a tremendous influence that the subconscious mind has on physical health. Um, and fortunately, uh, after so many decades of this being um, really seen as um, airy-fairy and everything by the medical establishment, it's now really being recognized that the mind is a very large part of physical healing. And if you leave out the mind and the emotions uh, and that sort of thing, then it makes the healing process a lot more difficult. And conversely, if you get the mind on board with the healing process, then it makes healing so much easier. So it's just from a practical standpoint, it's extremely efficient. So again, more and more doctors are kind of coming out of the dark and coming out of their prejudice and are saying, wow, yeah, the mind and the body are not separate like we've been taught. And it's actually uh, really important to honor both and they're actually indivisible. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the positive effects of the mind on the body. So we've all experienced emotions like love and joy and a sense of awe, being awestruck, um, a real conscious appreciation of, of beauty, uh, appreciation of, of uh, those moments where we feel love for another human being or our, our uh, animal companion or, or whatever. Sometimes it's just a love of an idea. And we're kind of flooded with this emotion, with this feeling. And what is happening is that there's this dramatic uh, release of endorphins and, and other kinds of you know, hormones and neurotransmitters and all kinds of good things that, that flood our body with this feeling of goodness. And when that happens, the healing process uh, commences or intensifies right then. So that's our innate ability. That's something that we're just all, as human beings, we're all gifted with. Um, release of endorphins, reduction of pain, feeling of well-being. It can help to, uh, to kind of interrupt obsessive thought. And again, the incitement and, the, uh, and intensification of the healing process. So how does this come about? How, what is it about the mind that is able to create this? Well, that's all a mystery. You know, and nobody really knows. But science has identified something that uh, called the placebo response, which has been the bane of uh, research for many years. And the placebo response was basically where they would set up an experiment and they would give um, some people sugar pills and other people they would give the real medication. And what they found was that a significant number of people 
given the sugar pills would actually have a positive reaction as if they were taking the drug. Um, and so it became really difficult and in some ways it's still really impossible to design experiments that can leave the placebo response entirely out. I mean, that's why they came up with what they call the double-blind uh, studies, but that's not applicable towards everything. But what has happened in more recent uh, years, or uh, very recently actually, is that they've said, well, wait a minute, let's not call the placebo response this dirty thing, let's actually make use of it. And what is it about the mind that can create this? Um, there's a famous story about a, uh, about a cancer patient who had like, uh, you know, very dramatic, huge tumor. Uh, as far as the doctors were concerned, he was a goner. But he went to this oncologist who uh, really believed in the power of the mind. And he said, look, there's this miraculous drug that just came out and we're going to give this to you, and we just know that it's going to work. And the guy was, was really, he really wanted to live. He was really hopeful. So they gave him the drug, and the drug wasn't even that promising in the clinical trials that they gave him. But it was like, you know, there's nothing else we can do. It's not going to hurt. Um, so they gave him the drug, and he had this incredibly positive response, and the, this gigantic tumor melted away. Uh, he got out, out of bed. He was resuming a normal life. It was seen as kind of a, me a medical miracle. And then um, a, a further studies, as I said, the drug was not very promising to begin with, but there, uh, it came into the news that the, uh, the drug was determined as being essentially ineffective. This guy who had cured himself through his mind unconsciously of this huge tumor um, saw this newscast that the drug wasn't effective and immediately the tumor started growing back. And so within weeks he was rendered into the state of being in bed again. He was near death and he went to the oncologist and the oncologist was desperate to try to keep this guy alive and he said, and he lied to him and he said, oh, you know, that was, that was that version of the drug, but now they've come out with this other really super version of the drug, and this stuff really works. And so the guy went home with all of this hope and everything. The tumors melted away. He came back, you know, uh, living a great life. And then somehow news got to him that there wasn't this super drug, that it was, um, that there was basically no drug that could help him and within days he was dead. So all of that was created by his mind, nothing but his mind. So that's the power that we all possess. Um, another area of, of uh, what we could call the placebo response is the, it's really recognized that in our relationship with our doctor, that, uh, or whoever our healthcare practitioners are, that the more that they can instill us with a feeling of compassion and caring, you know, that they genuinely care about us, uh, that, they're, that they're optimistic about our outcome, they're optimistic in our own ability to heal ourselves, they're optimistic in, in the treatment protocol that they have, that they exude this confidence, and that that is actually a significant part of whatever healing that we experience is our 
mental attitude in our actual relationship with these practitioners. Um, conversely, doctors who are kind of cold and analytical, who have really poor bedside manners, way too many of them as we know, um, they have a much lower rate of uh, healing with their clients because, because they're terrible at instilling that sense of confidence. They don't recognize that as an important part. It's kind of the old school that it's about coming up with a clinical diagnosis and treating it with drugs and not recognizing that just by reaching out and touching somebody and saying, I really believe in your ability to heal and meaning that can have a dramatic, dramatic effect. So they've done studies about people who uh, have had uh, positive healings with the, with the placebo response, and they found that there are certain kinds of characteristics that these people have, and I want to share them with you because the more that you can adopt this towards your own uh, healing process, the, you know, the, the more successful you may be. So what they found with these people is that there is there's an ability to believe there's uh, in the uh, treatment that they're undertaking, um, and it doesn't mean that you don't that no skepticism is allowed. It just means that it needs to be kind of like a a translucent kind of skepticism. In other words, other in you know it's like yeah I'm skeptical but I'm still open. Um, and so if you have that or if you're really able to believe in the treatment then that's, uh, that's something that's very positive. Being open to possibility, being open to, you know, no matter what kind of diagnosis that you get from a uh, medical prof professional, that you leave open the possibility of your own healing. And if necessary, even more so than them. And that you feel that at a really deep fundamental level. Um, another is being accepting of healing. We'll talk a little bit in, in about um, uh, emotional blockages and everything and how that can affect healing. But when you allow yourself to really feel that you are deserving of healing, then that opens the pathways quite a bit more. Um, so if you, if you suffer from a lot of doubt around that or a lot of uh, uh, being undeserving and that sort of thing, that's a good thing to work on and to heal because that can stand in the way of healing in a very dramatic way. Um, having a motivation to heal, having, having an interest in life and a motivation to heal. Um, and the expectation of a positive income. Income. <laughs> the expectation of a positive outcome. Income, outcome. Uh, so just basically, and it doesn't mean that you don't have any doubts. It doesn't mean that you don't have any fear. It's not about suppressing what doesn't agree with that, it just means that your, that your primary um, mode of being, your pi primary mental relationship with your healing is one of positive expectancy and one where you are fully open to and you're fully accepting of and you're fully expecting um, healing while also being willing to accept and to meet, to meet with compassion and realism to meet whatever, whatever arises. So, um, looking at my list here, let me scroll this up. 
So um, we talked a little bit about the, the, the positive effect of, of the mind on the body, and I just want to talk a little bit about the uh, negative effect of the mind on the body. Um, and this is, you know, primarily, when I say mind on the body, I'm primarily talking about the role of negative emotions and on, um, on the physiological functioning of the body. And I'm not talking about getting angry or feeling loneliness or any of those things which are just a normal part of being alive. I'm talking about things that become a chronic condition, a chronic habit. Um, so the number one uh, thing that compromises our health um, pretty much worldwide right now is stress. And when I use the word stress, I use it pretty broadly. I basically use it to say it's a compromise of our sense of emotional well-being. And so that can include anxiety. That can include, first of all, what we just usually call stress, which means, you know, I'm just stressed. I'm, I'm really, you know, it's sometimes just, just having too much on our plate, spending too much time online. Um, worrying about things too much. It's we are in this stressed state. There's uh, cortisone that is uh, that's released into the system, um, or cortisol, and and that is a stress response, and that does just wreaks havoc on the body because the body feels a threat, and it prepares for danger, and it prepares to fight this off. And if we're in that kind of state chronically then it has all kinds of ne negative health effects. So please never underestimate the potential role of stress in whatever physical conditions that you're dealing with. Uh, so anxiety, fear, depression, apprehension, worry, loneliness, um, a lack of purpose, uh, a sense of isolation, uh, vigilance against real and perceived danger, never feeling safe, uh, those those all are what I would call stress, and all of those have a very negative effect on the body. Um, you know, a lot of reasons for that, as we know, you know, in modern living, economic insecurity, disconnection from nature, disconnection from meaningful relationships, feeling a lack of community, feeling a lack of personal relevance in the world, um, you know, guilt, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of endless. Um, this affects the autonomic nervous system, sends messages to the adrenals to produce cortisone and adrenaline. Um, on the short term, it can create nausea and uh, digestive dysfunction and sweating and all kinds of things. Long term, uh, immune dysfunction, autoimmune conditions and suppressed immunity, which can leave you vulnerable to disease, insomnia, hormone <laughs> dysfunction, ulcers, Increase in the aging process, it's also a major contributing factor to things like heart disease and cancer. Um, so resolving sources of stress, physical stress, um, emotional trauma, emotional blockages, um, internalized negative assumptions about yourself or about your life, just those things, I mean, it's, that's a lot, but you just take a single one, you know, and uh, say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to work on having less stress in my life. What does that look like? Well, that looks like instead of hopping on the internet and reading the news when I get home from work or when I get up in the morning, I'm not going to do that. And notice how you feel. 
after after not doing that for a couple of days and doing something that's more kind of compassionate and and loving towards yourself and something that's more uh, life enhancing sometimes it's really it, it's not the big giant things it's really some of the smaller things that can make a significant drift a difference in reducing stress um, medical and psychological literature is full of stories now um, about how heart disease cancer and other kinds of illnesses have been alleviated just have been done with as a result of of uh, the alleviation of stress and of emotional healing um, of course it should be I, I also want to point out here that emotional symptoms are not always emotionally based this is a really important point and this is something that that uh, when I was suffering from Lyme and several other tick-borne illnesses the thing that really got my attention in that is that I was starting to feel crazy you know I started to develop this temper which I, I never had before I, I couldn't think straight I just was like feeling incredibly negative all the time and it's like good God you know what is going on and what I didn't realize was that I had a serious case of neurological Lyme disease and three other tick-borne diseases and my hormones were completely off you know it was, I was a basket case physically and I didn't know it but what I was experiencing was the emotional manifestations of that so emotional symptoms what we experience as emotional symptoms the ones that I outlined before including feelings of stress and depression and loneliness and you know just being blonde negative uh, etc etc can be entirely based on physical factors physical root causes like hormone dysfunction mold toxicity Lyme and other tick-borne diseases particularly Babesia Bartonella um, heavy metal toxicity such as mercury aluminum copper and lead uh, food sensitivities histamine what's called histamine sensitivity which is kind of the new food sensitivity thing out there and it's very very important it's rampant most of us don't even know about it uh, sleep apnea which creates a, a lack of oxygen at night and when that becomes chronic can have profound emotional effects candida overgrowth Herxheimer reactions detox reactions pretty much anything that creates a strong inflammatory response in the body and in the brain and which sends this cascade of hormonal and neurotransmitter dysfunction it's going to affect our emotional state and our entire view of the world so I, I wanted to point that out because it's really easy in being sick especially if one is chronically ill has been dealing with this for a long time to, to have a lot of self-judgment and and to be feeling like you know why can't I get it together why am I so negative and just please know that it may very well be that the things that are going on with you physically can be having a tremendous effect on what you're experiencing as your emotions and as your view of the world it took me a long time to accept that you know because I, I didn't want to accept that my mind could actually or my body my physiology could actually affect my worldview you know like my old view of the world could be affected by just molecules and I'm sorry but that's the case if your hormones are whacked out 
if you've got mold toxicity, if your brain's full of spirochetes, you're not going to be a happy camper. There's just no way. Uh, but the good news is that once you have those things diagnosed and you start taking care of them, then your emotional life can start to feel really rich and wonderful again pretty quickly, actually. So the other thing about... Um, One thing I like to, to counsel when, when I, sometimes I work with people who have a lot of physical uh, conditions um, and how to get their mind and spirit on board in the healing process and also sometimes of helping them to figure out what's going on physically. And one of the things, uh, you know, it's easier said than done, but one of the things is to try to not identify with the symptoms that you have. In other words, it's really easy especially if one has been sick for a long time, to start to identify with being a cancer victim or a Lyme sufferer or something. And the mind has this hunger to establish, you know, the mind, the ego has, has a hunger to establish an identity and to kind of wrap itself around an identity. It's like it's so desperate to say, ah, okay, I'm, uh, I'm a Lyme sufferer. That's what I am. And, and, all of these kind of habitual thoughts start to form around the identity of being a Lyme sufferer and suddenly you start to view the world from those particular lenses. And unfortunately what happens is that, you know, going back to the placebo response where you're having a, a positive expectancy of an outcome, but there's also something called the nocebo response and the nocebo response is where the negative expectation creates negative physical effects. So the shadow side of, of um, identifying with a diagnosis, I don't, I'm not talking about, you know, that you should ignore the diagnosis, but the shadow side of identifying with a particular illness or condition um, is that it kind of, it tells the mind, hey, I'm sick. I'm a sick person. And in subtle and dramatic ways, it affects one physiologically. It starts to, you know, there's a tendency of the mind to start to look at, you know, um, us versus them. They're not Lyme sufferers. I am. They're different from me. And, and it just sets up this whole process that, uh, that I found at least in my own healing process and my wife also who, who suffered from Lyme disease. Um, in a very dramatic way, that it just, it wasn't helpful. It's very seductive. There can be a sense of comfort to it, but it's not, it's not helpful. Um, okay, so let's go, that's why, <laughs> that's why the power of story, of the story that we tell ourselves is so important. And when I mean story, I'm, I'm using that word just a little bit loosely, um, because it's not this long, internal dialogue, but it, it is a way that language is internalized to describe uh, and a, a condition or a state that we identify with. So in other words, um, there's really a, a, a choice. One can say, okay, I, I'm, I have Lyme disease or I have cancer. And I'm um, not particularly happy about that, but um, 
I believe in the power of the mind and spirit and the body to heal, and uh, I'm on board with that, versus um, a negative story would be, um, oh my God, life, uh, life sucks. I mean, you know, and yeah, the microbes are just out to get us, and and uh, you know, I I kind of deserve this. I brought this on myself because I was so stressed out, and where it's my karma, or I'm creating my own reality here, and or it's it's because I'm weak, or you know, you know, there's ah, there's no hope, and and my doctor tells me it's just never going to change, and. And, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's a story. That's a story, an inner dialogue, short or long, it tends to build on itself, that is created and that's reinforced. That has nothing to do with the illness. It is a, uh, it's, it's a conceptual response that we're having to it. It's a creation of the mind. It's a fiction of the mind that says all of these things. I deserve this. This is going to go on forever. And hey, I've been there, you know, I know, and especially with some of these illnesses like Lyme that, that do affect Bartonella, other tick-borne diseases, um, it can feel like one has been sick forever and one is going to be sick forever. It seems endless in its source and in its destination. But if you can keep a part of the mind uh, aware, um, self-aware to where you can observe the mind, then, you know, the mind is always producing stuff. It's always producing a lot of its junk, you know. It's just what the mind does. The mind is a thought-making machine. The uh, philosopher Krishnamurti had a great saying when he said, thought is the thinker. We're, we're not thinking our thoughts. We're not, like, creating our thoughts. Thought thinks itself. It's a function of the brain. That's something that Buddhist teachers talk about uh, quite a bit and, and other, other spiritual teachers. Um, so there's no blame in having those thoughts, but if you can learn to, through a little bit of mind training, uh, to just observe, it's like, oh, there's that negative, there's that negative, those negative statements again, there's that negative story again. It gradually will lose its power and, and it will let go. Um, story is so powerful because it provides a context for our experience. It actually helps to establish the range of causes and and outcomes. It establishes our field of view and what we consider to be possible. So uh, there can be an innocence to it because it just seems like we're complaining to ourselves. But if we do that habitually, then it, then it kind of creates this construction of what is possible, what's not possible, how we're stuck, and we're kind of creating a cage innocently creating a cage of our own construction, of our own making. And that's the case because we are wired to story. We are story-making creatures. We understand things in terms of story. So story defines and limits or it opens us up, depending on the nature of the story. It activates latent positive or negative emotional energies and their consequent physical effects. So that's a point I want to make again, that the power of story is such that it conjures up these emotions, it activates these, these emotions, and the emotions, as we 
talked about before, the emotions have this power to affect us physiologically in either a physical, I mean, excuse me, in either a positive or a negative way. So let's talk about a positive story. Um, there's one, uh, um, I kind of came up with this idea called the hero's journey of healing as a result of my own um, adventure with Lyme disease. And that came about because I was, you know, I was going through a lot of what I was just talking about of just feeling really sorry for myself, of feeling like a victim, of feeling like uh, life was really against me, of feeling like this condition was never going to end. Uh, I couldn't imagine my life without it, um, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point, a prayer was actually part of this because I was kind of desperate. And it wasn't, I mean, sometimes it was prayer to God. Sometimes it was to Yeshua. Sometimes it was just to the nameless um, power of creation and intelligence and love. Um, and I asked for help. I asked for help. And what started to come forth was Basically, it was almost like an inner voice that was saying, um, dude, you're a filmmaker. You know, you've been making films, stories about other people, documentary films and their challenges and what they've overcome. So how about turning the camera on yourself, metaphorically speaking? How about thinking in terms of your own story? What, what would it look like? You know, what kind of story would you want told if, you, if somebody was making a film on your life? And so I started to think in terms of, of um, the kinds of films that I made about other people. And also what came forth was um, the notion of the hero's journey. You know, I love that book by uh, Joseph Campbell and um, had a tremendous effect on me. And it's like, oh my God, you know, what I'm experiencing when you when you look at the the hero tales throughout time they're all about people who are undergoing tremendous ordeals and they don't invite these ordeals well sometimes they do but a lot of times they don't invite these ordeals these ordeals are foisted upon them uh they may be the result of of uh things that they have invited in one way or the other and then there's a choice so the person who's undergoing that kind of suffering and those challenges that are seemingly beyond their ability to deal with them is given a choice of just to cave in and just to give up and or to venture forth. And sometimes it's a combination of both. Sometimes one gives up and then at some point you go, hey, wait a minute, this is not the way that I want to do this. And the hero's myth or the hero's journey stories are full of individuals, women and men, who have undergone trials and have found the resources within themselves and outside of themselves in the form of allies and helpers, in the form of uh, inner allies and sources of guidance, in the form of their own innate capacities that they didn't know about. So what I realized was that as I identified more with the hero's journey story, then all of this sense of greater well-being started to happen. So that's what I'm encouraging for you, that uh, for those of you who are really 
feeling stuck and identified with, with uh, whatever health challenges that you're dealing with, to consider um, the possibility that you're on a hero's journey or that you can start to relate to your difficulties as a hero's journey. And all I can tell you is that it changes everything because we are wired towards the hero's journey story. It is part, and by, by hero, I mean hero and heroine. I'm not, I'm not, I don't identify hero as being male, you know, necessarily. It's a hero is a woman, a hero is a man. But we are wired to that. I have been in different cultures, you know, filming around the world, and whether I was in um, Alaska or whether I was in the Sahara Desert or wherever, people were telling stories that were a hero's journey stories. And so, so my suggestion is why not make use of it? Um, let me look at my notes here for a second, make sure I'm not missing anything. So, yeah, so um, physical challenges are seen in the context of a hero's journey. Uh, challenges are regarded as similar to what all admired heroes have gone through throughout time, throughout human history. So that means you're not alone, that you're part of a, a lineage of heroes, that physical symptoms can be viewed as opportunities to learn through the fire of transformation. Um, and what happens is that when you start to consider that there's some there's some meaning in this journey of healing, in this journey of suffering and this journey of healing, um, then archetypal energies, these innate universal energies start to get activated within your psyche. And when, when that happens, that kicks in the endorphins, that kicks in all of these other um, hormones and neurotransmitters that are associated with the healing response, and the healing will commence. Uh, to a much greater degree than before. And we said that was my experience and the experience of many people that I know. So it provides this, the psychic and emotional energy to change old habits of mind and, and also lifestyle, because that's always a big teaching. It's like, you know, looking at diet, looking at all these other kinds of factors, activating a belief in a larger purpose to your suffering, so that you're so it's not futile it's not meaningless it's something that can be learned from and then the fruits can be shared with others because that's usually part of the hero's journey story as well you know that um, the hero comes back from her journey she has been transformed she's overcome these difficulties or these challenges she's met the challenges she's learned from them and now she wants to share the boon or the gift with other people and and that doesn't mean that it has to be in some big dramatic way it can it can be in a small way and if you you know learn and heal and grow from uh, from the illness that you're being challenged with that means that you will have the capacity a greater capacity to be able to help other people that you encounter who are going through the same thing and that's that's a great gift that's a great feeling um, so the first thing to, to activate the hero's journey of healing is to change the context of your experience. And uh, one way to do that is to find a hero that you admire um, and that you feel, who you feel inspired by, who has overcome suffering in their own life, and allow yourself to identify with them. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, you know, towards the end when we're talking about um, self-hypnosis. 
that is basically where you're you're really deeply internalizing these again kind of archetypal universal stories that has a particular uh, subject which is this particular hero um, but they are following the archetypal story which means that if you identify with them if you take them on as your own if you feel them in your body then they're going to be activated and all the goodness will f uh, of healing you know will will follow will be part of that so I, I just want to stress that this is not let me scroll up here again um, this is not denial this isn't you know positive thinking glossing over f fuzzy f fuzzy new age stuff um, this isn't just going around saying oh I'm fine I'm fine it isn't denying the suffering that you're going through it's just not identifying with it and limiting yourself to the suffering but seeing the suffering in a larger context of something like the hero's journey and saying wow God and when you're when you're part of the hero's journey when you're identified with the hero's journey it takes away a lot of the loneliness and the sense of isolation because you know you're not alone you know that there's all these other people who are suffering from Lyme disease and there's all these people who have uh, throughout human history who have suffered from illness and yet have accomplished these great things or have come to these great understandings or have developed these this great compassion just think about the people who um, maybe some people that you know who have gone through uh, cancer um, and um, whether they survived it or not um, and perhaps you know of people who have gone through that and have said my god you know there was a tremendous gift in this I mean I've had people with cancer who said it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me because I finally slowed down I finally started to spend some more time with my kids I finally realized that I was loved for who I was you know it's like in other words all of these transformations happened as a result of the intensity of that experience um, so So let's talk a little bit about spiritual uh, spiritual healing, um, and by spiritual healing or the role of the spiritual in healing, I I'm talking about a belief in a benevolent higher power is one form of it. Uh, another is belief in unseen energies and personages who one can interact with for healing and insight and uh, learning of healthier ways of being and living. And another aspect of, of spirituality often is, is prayer, is engaging in prayer, which is sometimes it's a, you know, an asking or a begging for, for some sort of benefit, um, uh, physical, material, or, you know, psychological, mental emotional benefit and other times it's just a sense of communing with a mystery that is greater than oneself um, so all of those uh, have very positive aspects in terms of healing um, so inner personages of course can include God Jesus Green Tara Shiva Saint Michael you know goes on and on and on depending on what what culture what what um, uh, spiritual tradition that you identify with 
Uh, another is uh, more shamanic is uh, the use of the meeting with animal allies and personages such as um, in the Navajo tradition or what are called Yebiche or the holy ones. Um, another is personal healing guides, inner, inner healing guides, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, Reiki guides. Uh, one of the things that I did as part of my healing process from Lyme was that I became a Reiki master and wow, that made a big, big difference. When I studied at that level and was kind of running those energies through my own body at that level, uh, that was also part of really turning the tide um, uh, in terms of my own healing uh, from Lyme disease. And um, another, um, another thing that some people do is to relate with benevolent ancestors. There some dear grandmother or aunt or something, somebody who has passed on that they feel, still feel a very strong uh, connection with. Now there's also negative spiritual aspects that can have an influence on physical health. Um, one of them is um, what are called disembodied entities. Now I want to kind of preface this by saying that um, the, when I studied depth, depth hypnosis at the Depth Hypnosis Institute, it was very integrative and there was a lot of um, you know, incorporation and appreciation for things like shamanism, Buddhist psychology, and we also read some of the literature that were written by uh, PhDs, uh, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, people who came from that portion of the brain that really believes in things needing to be seen and things needing to be repeated in order for them to exist. And yet these particular individuals uh, who became clinical, uh, either psychiatrists or clinical psychologists, started to encounter things within their practice that they had no explanation for and when they started reading more broadly outside of just the psychiatric or the psychological literature they started to see mention of things like entities and through their own research and experimenting they came to appreciate them as something that was very real. Um, so disembodied entities are uh, uh, my understanding, I'm not an expert in this, but my understanding is that they're the spirits who have been in human form and who have died but are stuck in between realms. You know, sometimes we call them ghosts. Um, and there's also dark energies, and these are entities who have never taken human form and have always been kind of part of the, part of the darkness side of the yin-yang equation of, of existence. Um, there's also past life imprints, um, and it's been really interesting for me because I, you know, I always, I've been pretty open spiritually because I've I've had to be because of certain experiences that I've had, but I've also been pretty skeptical, and I was really skeptical about this thing of of uh, entities um, until a few experiences that I had, and then of reading this literature that's pretty, you know, dense and pretty. Uh, pretty extraordinarily presented by these PhDs and MDs, and they're going, look, I don't like believing in this stuff either, but I can't ignore the evidence. And all I know is that when I relate to these, when I recognize them for what they're presenting themselves as, as entities, for instance, or, 
or past life imprints, and I work with them in this certain way, my patients enjoy relief that they've never had from anything else that they've tried. So this goes for both psychological healing and physical healing. Um, some of the people that have written about this, Edith Fiore is one. Uh, Dr. Winifred Blake Lucas has written a couple of really fascinating books. They're kind of more for practitioners. Um, Dr. Tom Zinser is somebody who is a clinical psychologist and was working with people who had uh, multiple personalities. And he, um, through kind of an interesting process, came about to um, uh, receive information about the role of entities, and he just tried it out in his practice. And these people who had tried psychiatric medications and all this therapy, including his therapy, and were not having any luck, they were getting this tremendous relief. And so he kind of said the same thing. He said, well, let's look at the evidence, let's look at the outcome, and if this is what it is, then fine with me. So I'm just mentioning those things, meaning that, that um, physical conditions, so just to kind of recap in a way, physical conditions um, can have a strong uh, psychological, emotional component to them. They can be the result of, of um, uh, repressed trauma, uh, emotional blockages, um, habitual negative states of mind, and when, and, and I'm adding to it by saying uh, negative entities um, is another possibility, and that when those things are addressed, there can be um, dramatic physical healings as a result. It certainly doesn't doesn't hurt. Um, if we have more time, I could tell you this great story about this guy who ran a trading post in Navajo country, who was a, uh, a devout Christian and who contacted me because he had been a total skeptic and totally judgmental about his Navajo weavers, who are very religious in the Navajo way. And then he had his own experience of disembodied entities, and it was very humbling, but maybe another time. Um, so how to work spiritually with, um, with, with bringing healing into your life? Um, as I mentioned before, sometimes it's, it's working with a particular entity. So it's, it's uh, ent entity, I mean like a deity, like if you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus, and Jesus was a great healer, uh, if you believe in green Tara or you believe in, you know, uh, whatever it is, if there's within your spiritual tradition, if there are personages who were known for healing and known for their love and their compassion for humankind, then you can go in and you can make contact with them and you can ask them for help and just put yourself in a very open and relaxed and receptive state to receive that energy. And it does, it can have a very positive, very, very positive effect. Uh, another thing would be to work with somebody who is experienced with entity release if you suspect that there is just something that's been kind of dogging you that, um, you know, one of the symptoms can be a very, very fast um, onset of symptoms, uh, emotional symptoms, physical symptoms that don't seem to have a, a, a particular cause to them. Um, and prayer. Prayer has been 
proven to be very, very powerful. Uh, you don't even need to be religious to pray. It's more a communing. You can be an atheist if you believe in some vast uh, source, not a deity, but a source of, of uh, the animating uh, source of existence, something that propels uh, life into evolution, etc., then there's a way of communing with that, opening your mind and just communing silently with that. And that can be very healing. So let's talk about hypnosis. Um, hypnosis first came about, or, or I should say that the early uses of hypnosis had nothing to do with stage hypnotism make, making people cluck like a chicken. It was actually um, one of the pioneers was a man named uh, Esdale, James Esdale, who was a Scottish, Scottish surgeon in India, and he was using, he didn't have anesthesia. And so, and he had to like amputate people's legs. And so he found that using a very deep form of hypnosis, taking people in, into a very deep hypnotic trance, um, he could do 80% of what hypnosis, uh, hypnosis could do 80% of what anesthesia could do. Uh, and so he was able to, and not only that, but, but people who underwent surgery, if they did have anesthesia back then, still died like flies, and uh, his patients did not. So there was something about the activation of the immune system, et cetera, as a result of this deep hypnosis that also gave his clients a much uh, better chance of living. Excuse me. Hypnosis was also used early on in dentistry. And so it was recognized very early for pain, for pain relief. Um, what is hypnosis? We don't really know. We know that it's a natural capacity of the conscious mind to relax while the subconscious mind becomes, in a sense, closer to the service or more accessible so that it can be worked with, it can be dialogued with for the purpose of relaxation, for the purpose of insight, and for the purpose of healing, both emotional and physical healing. Uh, characteristics, uh, we've all experienced versions of hypnosis. Uh, deep, deep, deep relaxation. Uh, sometimes it's like that almost dream state when you first wake up and you're awake, but you're still kind of in that dream state. Well, that's very much what a hypnotic state feels like. Um, it's a focused but relaxed awareness. Um, there's uh, often, you know, as I said, deeply relaxing on every level, physiological level of the body. Um, there's also a uh, what's called suggestibility, which means a certain way in which the mind can receive an instruction and those instructions get passed at a very deep level into the subconscious mind. Um, so that brings forth potential misconceptions about hypnosis. And... Um, meaning, you know, you'll cluck like a chicken, you'll bark like a dog, um, you'll lose control, lose your mind, um, you get stuck in a trance, uh, you'll do things against your will, you'll be taken over by the devil, um, but none of those things are true. Um, people who go and do ridiculous things in front of stage, hypnos uh, stage hypnotists, <coughs> excuse me, tend to be exhibitionists, they're chosen very carefully uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, because they were, are willing to do ridiculous things, and they also tend to be people who 
are very uh, fearful or don't want to embarrass the hypnotist, so they'll go ahead and follow along with the instructions. I've talked to people who have done that. Well, I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Um, you won't lose control of your mind. You won't reveal your innermost secrets. You're actually conscious. You're very, very deeply relaxed, but you're still conscious in the state of hypnosis, and which means that you can emerge from that state anytime you want. You can say, oh, I've had enough, um, and you can come out of it anytime you want. But a lot of people don't want to, and they don't want to because it is so deliciously, extraordinarily relaxing. Um, it's like, the, in a sense, it feels like the, some of the deep, deep forms of meditation. And um, so the only time I've had a, a client who um, it was, you know, it took a little time for them to get out. It's because they didn't want to come out. They loved where they were, and they didn't want to face the rest of the day. Um, so you don't have to worry about getting stuck in it. Um, you won't do anything against your will because your your faculties are still there. And likewise, if you are working with a, a hypnotist or hypnotherapist and, and you're receiving suggestions from them um, towards healing, emotional healing, physical healing, whatever, they can't tell you anything that, um, if you disagree with, will take effect. So in other words, if you're working with somebody and they say something as a suggestion and you're going, well, no, I don't want to do that, or that's not the way I would put it at all, um, it's not going to take hold. You know, it's not like some magical programming that goes into the computer of your brain and then you don't have a choice about it. So it's very, it's very, very benign. Now, um, the only time that it's really contraindicated is if a person is schizophrenic, uh, has multiple personalities, uh, is in the midst of, a, uh, of alcohol or drug psychosis, something like that. Um, not to say that there aren't people who can't work with schizophrenics or people with multiple personality disorders, but it takes somebody who's extraordinarily adept uh, because those are um, so you know basically if you're of if you're a basic sound mind um, uh, then hypnosis is fine hypnosis is very safe it's been practiced for a long time and to make sure of course that the person that you're working with is is qualified and that you feel a good connection a feeling a trust with them that's very important um, so hypnosis for health um, the alleviation of mental emotional conditions such as stress, fears, anxiety, difficult habits, negative internalized stories. There's a deep response of the body and the mind uh, in terms of relaxation. It activates the vagus nerve. Um, and then you can introduce instructions to the subconscious mind which will affect the autonomic nervous system. So we can actually have uh, an effect in alleviating um, hypertension, stress, constipation, high blood pressure. Um, there can be a benefit in working with cancer, uh, pain management, autoimmune conditions, childbirth. Um, it can help people to stop smoking or overeating or overdrinking. Um, it can be really useful in, in helping to fight diseases because it can help to activate the immune system. Um, pre-op and, and post-op, uh, you know, before and after surgery. Um, it can help with anxiety. It can reduce the level of anesthesia that's needed, and it can radically speed up the healing process afterwards. 
I want to just mention something called uh, verbal first aid, which is really a wonderful thing. And that is the use of the voice in emergency kinds of situations um, that can have a really sometimes very, very dramatic effect on healing. Uh, it is something, I forget the name of the person who developed it, but she termed it verbal first aid, which is brilliant. And, uh, and I encourage everybody to get this, to get the book that she's written, which is called Verbal First Aid, because it'll teach you about what to do if you're in a situation and you come across a car accident, or if you're a, um, a medical professional, or you work in an ambulance, or you know, you're a first responder, or something like that. There's a way that you can um, use your words uh, that can have a profound effect on a person. And I'll just give a tiny example of this. I had somebody, a neighbor, show up uh, to, to my place, and he had uh, really severe uh, second-degree and almost third-degree burns on his hand and, and on his forearm and on his stomach. And he was in a tremendous amount of pain, and he was shaking. And my wife was there, and she gave him some homeopathy for the, for the anxiety. Um, and... Um, but he was, he was very freaked out. He was very worried. Uh, he was in terrible judgment about himself because it was kind of a silly accident that he had with his stove. And I drove him to the hospital, which was an hour away. And because I knew a little bit about verbal first aid, I just started talking in this. I, gave, I asked his permission first. And then I started talking in this calm voice. And I just said, you know, John, um, it's really wonderful, all the stories that are out there about people who have healed their body with their minds. And just by thinking about how the body is able to start to heal itself, how it wants to heal itself, how it starts to heal itself even before we ask it to, even without us asking it to. But just think about what the possibilities are when we do ask it to. So, you know, I was kind of talking in this slightly hypnotic way and introducing these suggestions, these ideas of the body being able to heal, of his body being able to heal, about how by focusing on something out in the landscape as we were driving by, that he could focus on that and the pain would gradually reduce. And he went from this real, you know, just in terrible pain and anxiety and almost a panic attack to being calm. And we walked into the, into the emergency room and he went up and he sat down and he went, okay, so what are we going to do now, you know, to the reception person? And she kind of looked at him and his hand and went, are you okay? And he said, well, I, I'm a lot better than I was. What, what's, let's get this over with. And he healed in a remarkable amount of time and had no scarring. So... The, the wonder of this isn't what I did, it's, the, it's that I said a few words and activated what was latent in his own mind. And so uh, this can work if your child cuts them or your partner cuts themselves or whatever, that there's words that you can say. You know, conversely, if you say, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, this is terrible, you know, that is going to activate their stress response and can have exactly the opposite, you know, a negative effect on their healing. But if you if you work in terms of this verbal first aid, these calming words and this acknowledgement of the body's capacity to heal, and you're introducing those words specifically towards what they're dealing with there, it can have this remarkable effect. So I really encourage you to get that book. Um, 
So we're getting along here in time. And um, so I want to go ahead to, um, I want to go ahead to self-hypnosis. And the first thing I want to do is I want to recommend another book. And this is it right here. So this is Guided Imagery for Self-Healing. Guided Imagery for Self-Healing by Martin Rossman, R-O-S-S-M-A-N-M-D. Hope you can see that there. Not sure where it needs to be. Okay. I've got a lot of books on self-hypnosis, and this is just one of the one of the finest. He has done it for decades. He's very humble. Um, he's had tremendous results, and it's really designed for for any of us to be able to read and to start to apply towards our own life. Um, so I want to talk about self-hypnosis. And um, it's basically using this latent capacity of your mind towards the process of your own healing. And um, so here's, here's some steps to that. So the first thing is to adopt the right attitude. And that's this attitude of positive expectancy and of having this, this positive anticipation of what the possibilities of this activity are in your life. So it, that's kind of like hope, you know, having some hope, uh, open-mindedness. Um, so an, an attitude of allowing that you're going to, in this session with yourself, you're going to allow relaxation and peace and insight and healing to emerge on its own, in its own form, in its own time, trusting your subconscious mind, trusting its wisdom, um, trusting your body that it has this remarkable capacity to heal, and placing yourself in a, in a comfortable, safe place. Uh, the phones are off, your iPhone's off, your um, a sign's on the door, please don't disturb. You don't want to be interrupted. It's not dangerous to be interrupted in, when you're in a hypnotic state. It's just, un it's just unpleasant because, it's again, it's such a delicious state. You know, it's like you don't... It's like having a wonderful meal. You don't want to, like, get up in the middle of it. Um, so you, you can sit. You can recline. You can lay down, although laying down, you're likely to fall asleep. Uh, wear loose clothing. Take off jewelry, anything that's tight, anything that's constricting. And then take some deep, gentle breaths. And do the breathing from your belly. Uh, in yoga, sometimes it's called belly breathing or it's called Buddha breathing. And it's by relaxing the muscles of your diaphragm and the muscles of your abdomen and allowing your, your stomach, when you inhale, your stomach will, will kind of puff out and uh, allowing your stomach to expand and contract with your breath. Um, and what this does is it activates the... Uh, vagus nerve, among other things, and sets forth this cascade of these relaxation neurotransmitters and hormones and kind of, you know, lays the groundwork. So that's, that's a really good way to start. And some people, it's funny, are, even if they're by themselves or self-conscious, like, my belly looks so big. But go ahead, just let your belly be big. 
because it feels really good when your abdominal muscles are really relaxed and, um, and you're taking in these comfortable deep breaths. Um, now there's, I'm not going to go into detail about the different techniques of self-hypnosis because uh, there's a lot of sources. It really depends on what works for you, but I just want to say that it may take some experimentation. Um, one thing that works for one person won't necessarily work for another. Um, another thing is to be conscious of whether you are a visual person, whether you're a, um, a tactile person, whether you are, uh, you, you say are not visual but you really respond strongly to sound, or whether you just have um, feelings, you know, whether you sense things by feelings more than anything else. Because whatever your dominant sense mechanism is, is the one that you should focus on with your, with your self-hypnosis. So if you're visually oriented, then you can imagine yourself in this beautiful garden and you can bring forth all these different things of beauty in this garden. If you're smell oriented, then you would place yourself, say, in a relaxing garden, but you would have the sense of smell. There'd be all these beautiful flowers or the smell of the water flowing through the creek or the, the scent of the of the um, of the pines coming down from the mountains, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so and so one technique for actually what you're doing is you're kind of shifting the mind's focus from from the th conscious thought process to this much more relaxed and focused and inward inward focus. And there's different ways of doing that. Um, one way is by creating eye strain, and it's by looking at a point on the ceiling. So you're sitting there and your head is forward, but you're looking up at a point on the ceiling that is just right at, your, at the top of your line of sight. And it's a little uncomfortable. I mean, what you're doing is you're actually creating strain in the eyes. But you do that, you focus on that spot. You don't kind of wander around. You focus on that spot, focus on that spot, focus on that spot. You've already done your belly breathing, and you kind of continue a relaxed breathing. You focus on that spot. And when your eyes get really tired, then you allow your eyes to drop down and your head can drop down. And you imagine yourself... Um, and your consciousness just kind of going down, 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 inward, inward, inward. Now, some people, this is all that it takes, and they can go very deep. Um, and uh, so, as I said, it's for some it'll work brilliantly. For for others, it won't. Um, you know, don't judge yourselves. It takes. It's like a mind training too. So it takes some time. Sometimes immediate. Sometimes it takes some time. Uh, so I just encourage you to to uh, persist with it because the benefits are so great. Um, another way is to um, have your arm lifted, your hand, and to focus on a spot on, on your hand and just to consciously relax, relax, and you focus on that spot on your hand, focusing on that spot on your hand, and then shift your focus to the tip of your nose, and that's creating some eye strain there. And then when you feel that strain and there's kind of a heaviness in the eyes, then you can focus back on your hand and then allow your hand to drop. And as your hand drops, then you drop your eyes. You may drop your head. And you just have this sense of this kind of cascading of, 
of muscles relaxing and taking you down and down and in. And it's not as if you're aiming for some profound trance state where the rest of the world just disappears. Um, it'll be a focused, deeply relaxed, calm state that has this feeling of openness to it, openness and possibility. And then what you can do from there is that you can start to, um, you can apply it for the purpose of healing. Oh, excuse me, one, one other thing I want to mention, another way of doing it, and it's something that um, Martin Rossman talks about in the books, is that you can, you can look at a self-hypnosis script and you can um, record it. And you can take that recording in and you can um, put yourself in a safe place, put some, some uh, earbuds in, and then just allow yourself to be taken on this journey. You can record the voice yourself. You can have, if you don't like your voice for some reason, you can have somebody else record it uh, whose voice you like. And that's another way of doing it. And there's lots of scripts in that book for different ways of healing and meeting inner guides, etc. Uh, or you can design it yourself. Um, in designing a, uh, a session for yourself, um, keep in, it's like a, you're gathering ingredients, and you're gathering ingredients of the kinds of images and past experiences and um, spiritual personages or personages in real life who you really admire who have certain kinds of qualities, um, these ingredients that have a emotional potency to them. So you're looking for something that you really resonate with, you know, somebody who you really love and admire or, or, or um, an inner spiritual figure who you really feel a, a great love and devotion and benevolence uh, from. Um, another thing is to gather uh, images that are around the, say, the condition that you're trying to heal. And, um, okay, let me get back on the, excuse me here. Okay, so inner personages. Um, also, um, you know, really conjure up vivid, vivid states of wellness that you have experienced in the past. Or say if you've had some kind of healing in the past, what that felt like, and, and imagining that in a very so. In other words, you're again you're gathering potent, you know, emotionally potent ingredients, personages or uh, that you admire and love, uh, who have these qualities that you want to emulate or have had experiences of healing, um, your own past vivid states of healing, experiences with healing. So that these are the things that you're kind of stringing together. These are the things that you're going to introduce, that you're going to visualize, that you're going to feel into when you are in that deeply relaxed state. Um, so one way to apply this is if you are dealing with a particular physical condition, uh, the simplest thing that you can do is just that you take yourself uh, uh, through this process of deep relaxation uh, into this deeply relaxed state, and then you just call forth this uh, this feeling of wellness. You're recalling, even it doesn't matter how bad you feel in the moment, this is the beauty of it. If you can recall that feeling 
that wonderful feeling of wellness and wholeness that you have had in the past, then the subconscious mind remembers that. And it doesn't know the difference between past and present and future. You know, it's all the now to the subconscious mind. So by embodying that and really taking in that feeling of that past experience as the present, then the subconscious relates to it as the present and starts to make the physiological changes in the body to accommodate that state of wellness. Um, so in that way, you, you, you know, it's, that's, that's just very simple and that can be done in a fairly short period of time. And that's kind of a nice way to get to know self-hypnosis uh, is to do that. You can also call forth that inner spiritual personage, be it God or Jesus or Buddha or whoever, and, um, and just imagining that being in front of you with you, loving you, sending you love and compassion, and that energy and that love and compassion and that healing flowing into your body uh, is another thing that you can do. Again, very, very simple. But when you're in that deeply relaxed and receptive state, it can feel very powerful. Um, so, and then from there, you can go into uh, more complex forms of self-hypnosis, where if you're dealing with something like Lyme disease or say with cancer, where, um, say with cancer, well, you've got these things called out-of-control cells, and the cells are multiplying, and uh, they're potentially spreading in other parts of your body. And so the thing to do is to come up with your own images of how you relate to that. So you have to know a little bit about the physiological process that's going on. What is the cancer doing in your body? Um, and then you come up with your own metaphors for um, your own kind of images, your own metaphors for those processes. So if it's a mass of cells in a tumor, you come up with your own image of what that mass of cells as in, in the tumor look like, uh, what a meaningful metaphor, you know, some people might say, well, it's a bunch of maggots, or some people might say it's a bunch of cells that are just lost. They're like lost little children grouped together, and somebody else could say, well, it's just like a bunch of angry bees. So, you know, come up with an image for that, and then if the, if the process of healing entails somehow getting rid of those cells, then come up with your own imagery and, and metaphors for that process of getting rid of the cells. No, size, you know, no one size fits all. So for some people, it's going to be um, waging a war you know, and having soldiers, and they're marching in, and they're, and they're killing these, these angry, uh, cancer, destructive cancer cells. For somebody else, it's coming in and covering them with light and dissolving them into light, you know, because the war imagery is just, is just not their style at all. So you find something that you feel a deep resonance with, and then you, um, you take yourself into that deeply relaxed state. You imagine that process going on the eradication or the transformation of those cancer cells, and you do it on as consistent a basis as you can. And it can be a tremendous, tremendous benefit for you. So you can do this for any physiological condition. If you have some kind of hormone dysfunction, learn just a little bit about the organ that produces the hormone and the physiological processes, nothing really complicated. And then come up with your, it's like you're telling a story in a way, you know, and you come up with your own images it's fun. It's really cool because you're, you're, 
you're kind of creating this whole other depth of relationship with your inner life and with your body in a very compassionate and loving way. Um, you can also, and there's something that uh, Dr. Rossman talks about a lot in his book, is to meet with an inner guide of some kind and, uh, and ask the inner guide for guidance. Ask them what's going on with your body, what changes or what do you need to do? What is your body asking of you? And it can be the source of some really very profound uh, and useful information. If doubt or fear arises, um, you can just acknowledge it. If, say, doubt arises in the, in the middle of this session, you can allow the fear to be there and then call up a feeling of confidence from another time in your life, of certainty and kind of hold those two feelings together. And it'll help to dissolve that feeling of negativity. It actually restructures the memories that come from, uh, that are the root source of that doubt, if it's a habitual doubt. It actually reconfigures where the, how those memories are stored in the brain. Um, now, just, I just want to stress that just the activity of putting yourself into this deeply relaxed state on a consistent basis has tremendously beneficial effects because when the body reaches that deep physiological uh, relaxation, um, the healing process commences. It's like it's a signal to the body that says, great, the war is over, let's get to work. And so all these wonderful healing processes start. Um, how can you apply this with spooky? And one way is, um, is that whatever frequencies that you're using uh, and, and you know, whatever mode you're using, whether it's ultrasonic or whether it's plasma or whether it's contact or whether it's remote, of taking yourself into that state and of receiving those frequencies. If you're using the plasma tube, you know, you can imagine that light and that energy penetrating into the area that you want to receive that healing and of, its, of it doing its wonderful work and of those frequencies. And you can visualize the frequencies in some other way. They're, they're not, of course, you know, we, we plug in these numbers or we click on these numbers, but you can visualize the frequency in whatever way is meaningful for you. And, um, and then by creating a meaningful metaphor, it, it activates the archetype, if you will, of that frequency, and it will do its work on a whole other level. So it um, <laughs> looks like we've gone a while here, and um, so I'm going to pause. Oh, one thing I want to stress is that if you in terms of um, really deep emotional work, um, I really recommend working with a compassionate and skilled practitioner for that and not doing that work, um, that work on your own. Uh, because when you're, when you're working with a competent and compassionate guide, it, um, that has its own form of healing and it's going to be a, a much more efficient way of working. So I'm looking to see if there's any questions. I certainly welcome your questions. Um, 
can I supply, uh, Wolfgang Janata asked, can I supply a written version of my talk, of my most excellent talk? Well, thank you, Wolfgang. Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I'll look into that. Um, Bev Wright asked, uh, she says, hi, Kevin. I use the twin lasers as a pendulum to increase and shift energy. I also use spooky with sacred geometry, sensor rings, and crystals. Have you tried these? If so, what results have you had? Thanks, Bev. Thank you, Bev, for the question. No, I have not used um, pendulum. Uh, to, now, I have used a pendulum for guidance sometimes, but I have not used it to shift energy. Uh, and I haven't used these other things. So, wow, that's wonderful. Good work. Thank you for the question. And Diana Smith asked, can I put the names of the books that I recommend in chat so I can find them after the session is over? And if I can do that afterwards, I will. Um, so any other, any other questions? Let's see. It looks like, I think that's all the questions. Okay. All right, so uh, this has been a, a long session. I talked a lot. I apologize. I hope it was uh, interesting and useful. And um, if questions come to you afterwards, uh, feel free to contact me through my website, interalliance.net. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for taking time out from your busy schedule to be on our show. Um, we've all benefited from your fascinating talk. Um, this was your first time being on a streaming video live on the internet, and you did great. Oh, thank, thank you. you again. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, now, just a gentle reminder, if anyone else would like to also be on our show, uh, please email us at samer at spooky2 mall.com. We'd love to hear from you. So thank you once again. Kevin, your talk was brilliant. It was fascinating. Thank you. You're very and welcome. Thank you. And thank you viewers for watching. Goodbye. Bye-bye.